0: Hello there and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein, joined today by ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky and ABC News political analyst Steve Roberts. I am here in Atlanta, where we're just hours away from a Democratic debate. Uh, the fifth Democratic debate uh, It will be an interesting one, uh, but it will also be overshadowed by some of the monumental, uh, perhaps earth-shattering news out of Washington. Quite a day, gentlemen, where we heard from Ambassador Sondland, probably the most awaited witness in this testimony so far. Uh, Aaron, what did what did you hear in Ambassador Sondland?
1: Ambassador Sondland was the only one to be in touch with President Trump in the course of, of the events that cover the impeachment inquiry. And, and Rick, while he stopped short of saying he heard directly from President Trump uh, about a quid pro quo, he made clear there was one. And he said he took part in it because Rudy Giuliani gave him directions. And Giuliani was acting at the behest uh, of the president. So he said he was following the president's orders. Giuliani was pushing a quid pro quo. And crucially, Rick, he said that others in the administration knew everyone, Sondland testified, was in the loop, including Vice President Pence, including Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. And he brought emails and text messages to try to prove it.
0: In the loop and, and much of this at the direction of the president. It was powerful when we heard the words the actual words, quid pro quo, from his mouth. Take a listen to this.
2: Mr. Giuliani's requests were a quid pro quo for arranging a White House visit for President Zelensky. Mr. Giuliani demanded that Ukraine make a public statement announcing the investigations of the 2016 election, DNC server, and Burisma. Mr. Giuliani was expressing the desires of the President of the United States, and we knew these investigations were important to the President.
0: Steve Roberts put this in context for us. We know the President's allies have been maintaining for a long time. There was no quid pro quo. Here is Ambassador Sondland, a Trump donor appointed to the job by President Trump to become ambassador to the European Union, saying actually there was a quid pro quo at the direction of the President's attorney.
3: Not only was there a quid pro quo, but everybody knew about it. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, was winning. Um, and uh, so were uh, a number of other key administration officials. Um, I think they're going to have to shift their, uh, their ground yet again. Um, I, I think that uh, the evidence is now not just from uh, this witness, from all the other witnesses we've heard, have reinforced the basic allegation of the whistleblower, the basic thing that um, uh, Ambassador Sondland admitted today, uh, that there was a a deal, uh, there was a, a favor that the president was demanding. The other question, though, you can call it inappropriate, you could call it improper, you could call it irregular, all words which the witnesses have used. I word that, though, is the most important word, is impeachable. And that's where I think the Republicans, their final defense is going to rest on that. They, you can admit every single thing that was said by Sondland today and still come back to the argument, as uh, Congressman Nunez, the ranking member, uh, uh, has said a number of times, does this rise in importance to impeaching a president, and negating the outcome of the last election and 63 million votes that the president got in the last election. In the end, that, wreck is going to be the Republicans' final and most important defense that whatever else is true, it's not worth, it's not important enough, it's not damaging enough, it's not drastic enough to cancel the last election, Rick.
0: And one of the powerful things about Ambassador Sondland in his testimony, to my mind, is what Aaron referenced, that this was not a one-off or something that he was the alone knew about. He recounted in in detail how President Trump told him, check in with Rudy, do this through Rudy, and that Rudy went forward. And then, as they went forward, um, he, he pushed back at the notion that this was some kind of a regular channel. He says this was all above board and everyone knew about it. Uh, take a listen to this.
2: Everyone was in the loop. It was no secret. Everyone was informed via email on July 19th, days before the presidential call. As I communicated to the team, I told President Zelensky in advance that assurances to run a fully transparent investigation and turn over every stone were necessary in his call with President Trump.
0: So there you have the connection, Aaron Katursky, between President Trump and President Zelensky. Sondland directly delivering that message that he says he was directed to deliver via Rudy Giuliani to Zelensky... Uh, In particular. Now, a key thing here, though, um, that I think is important for the Republican arguments is that he didn't condition the release of aid here. He was only talking about this meeting. Do you feel like that has significance? Is that a nuance that's important here?
1: It is a nuance that's important because of of the, the article of impeachment regarding bribery, at least according to the criminal statute dangling a meeting is not enough to get you to bribery. The Supreme Court said that in the uh, Governor McDonald case out of Virginia. It wasn't enough, even though today Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff uh, said that it was. Schiff said that White House meeting was going to be an official meeting between the two presidents. Correct? Sondland says, presumably. And Schiff goes on, it would be an Oval Office meeting, hopefully. A working meeting, Sondland says. A working meeting, says Schiff. So an official act. Correct. And Sondland says yes. And so to shift, it does build a case toward impeachment. But Republicans can can certainly uh, point to the distance between the White House meeting and the 400 million dollars in security aid that Sondland said he presumed was contingent upon these investigations being announced. But he didn't really have any specific evidence.
0: Yeah, the, the, that, that's key here, is that he, he's making presumptions, but he's not doing it based on guesswork. Uh, he's doing it based on logic, essentially. I, I feel like this was a, a critical exchange that I want to ask you about, Steve Roberts. This is Daniel Goldman uh, questioning Ambassador Sondland about how he came to that ultimate conclusion that that release of aid was also part of the deal.
2: You understood the Ukrainians received no credible explanation. Is that right? I certainly didn't. couldn't give them one. So... Is this kind of a 2 plus 2 equals 4 conclusion that you reached? Pretty much. Is the only logical conclusion to you that, given all of these factors, that the aid was also a part of this quid pro quo? Yep.
0: And and Steve, so much of the case that's been built against the president has been based on the perceptions, the judgments of people around him. These are all current Trump administration officials that are testifying. It's not like they have an obvious political axe to grind, but... They're making judgments. How do you feel like that is, is or isn't a distinction that's important here as we try to handicap what happens next?
3: I think it's an important distinction to the members of Congress and the people who are following this very closely. I think it's a very unimportant distinction when you get to the general public. Uh, and there are several audiences here, Rick. There are several uh, venues in which this uh, hearing is playing out. Uh, and you can get a little too close to this and parsing words back and forth. This is not a court of law. This is a pol- I- I- finally, this is a political uh, e- exercise uh, that will end in a political judgment. And uh, Democrats have said repeatedly that uh, impeachment can only be successful if it's bipartisan. And so far, it's certainly true that the Democratic troops have been roused by impeachment. But it's also true that it is not bipartisan. Every single poll that's come out in the last few days has come to almost the exact same conclusion, which is that a small margin of Americans, by a small margin, a majority of Americans do favor impeachment. But somewhere between about 40 to 45% of Americans, mainly Republicans, are against impeachment. And so these um, battles over words, these battles over shadings, these battles over meanings might have uh, uh, relevance and and, and, uh, resonance in the uh, uh, in the hearing room, but out in America, uh, I think the, uh, the the battle lines have been drawn. Our poll at ABC shows that most Americans have already made up their minds, and that um, this is the Democrats. So far, have failed to make a case that goes beyond their base. Failed to make a case that has uh, energized a bipartisan consensus on impeachment. And that's, uh, down the line, going to prove to be a very significant problem for them, Rick.
0: And our poll with Ipsos this week showed that 70% of Americans think that something wrong was done here, something was done wrong and properly by President Trump, but only 51% support both impeachment and removal. That, to me, is a, is a critical you know one in five Americans who are believing that something bad happened here but don't see impeachment as the proper solution. And if they're looking for an out, Republicans are still trying to give them one. And This, I think, is an important distinction. We mentioned this a little bit about the distance they're putting between uh, President Trump and any directive. This is the Republican lawyer, Steve Castor, uh, questioning Ambassador Sondland on Wednesday.
2: Did the president ever tell you personally about any preconditions for anything? No. Okay, so the president never told you about any preconditions for the aid to be released? No, uh, the president never told you about any preconditions for a White House meeting.
0: Personally, no. And as we know, gentlemen, uh, the president quite angrily today recounting another aspect of what Ambassador Sondland has said, which is the phone call directly with the, with the president, where the president and Sondland agree. He said he didn't want a quid pro quo. He just wanted Zelensky to quote do the right thing. Now a lot unsaid in that conversation. But if you're looking for a shade of plausible deniability, that is still there, uh, despite the the bombshells that we heard today from Ambassador Sondland, Aaron. uh, That, that to me, is still a distinction that uh, you're going to hear a lot about.
1: And and Republicans kept coming back to it and and harp on it, that without that explicit language from the president, uh, there's no there there. And, And enough of Sondland's recollections were fuzzy, such that the Republicans could say or at least try to cast him as a a witness who just isn't worth listening to. However, it's hard to see how Sondland's testimony is anything but damaging to the White House. Uh, the, the, The president did come out rather forcefully and say he wanted nothing and made that clear to Sondland. But every other witness who has testified said that was the impression that was left with them.
0: And that's in large part because it was conveyed directly to them by an intermediary. And the person of Rudy Giuliani continues to be clear here. Uh, this is Ambassador Sondland talking about uh, what he, what, how he interpreted the president's direction to talk to Rudy.
2: Well, when the president says, talk to my personal attorney, and then Mr. Giuliani, as his personal attorney, uh, makes certain requests or demands, we assume it's coming from the president. Uh, I don't. I don't. I'm not testifying that I heard the president tell Mr. Giuliani to tell us. So, if that's your question,
0: and so my question for you, Steve Roberts, is: Can the Democrats effectively make this case without further witnesses, without Rudy Giuliani, without John Bolton, without Mike Pompeo? People. Who would have directly heard these conversations without mick mulvaney people that can testify to what the president's direct state of mind as we know that's going to get caught up in court and democrats don't feel like they want to uh, put up with a timeline that uh, is imposed by them or on them by the white house and by the courts
3: Well, they're in a very difficult position. You know, there was a a real irony here because Devin Nunez, the ranking Republican, um, uh, argued forcefully that the Democrats are withholding witnesses, including the whistleblower, when in fact it's the White House who is really the one that is hampering the investigation far more seriously by not allowing the senior officials, whether it's Mick, Vol- Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, whether it's uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, or any of these people who would have direct uh, knowledge. And they keep saying, well, this is hearsay. This is secondhand. But by the way, you cannot talk to the people who have direct knowledge. So it's Democrats are very frustrated. And, um, uh, and in the end, Rick, uh, you made a good point that 70 percent uh, think something bad happened. Only 50 percent are in favor of impeachment. But let's remember 11 months from now, there's going to be an election. Uh, And even if the Democrats are unable to get the 20 Republican votes they need in the Senate, and that's going to be highly, highly unlikely they can do that, there is another way in which these impeachment hearings will be tested. There's another forum. There's another um, moment in our history when judgments will be rendered, and they will be rendered by the voters. And I think one of the things that doesn't get enough attention is that Even if the Democrats cannot reach the level of of impeachment, even if they cannot prove a case so drastic and so damaging that would uh, involve the presidents being removed from office, what we're seeing here today are are sound bites. We're seeing ideas. We're seeing arguments. That will be very important in the political campaign a year from now. Uh, And that's the, the second forum, and in some ways the more important forum, Uh, in which the events we saw today and are seeing all week will finally be judged, but they will be judged not by the U.S. Senate, but by the American voters. And Steve, that is
0: a great segue into the debate that we're going to have tonight. And uh, after the break, in a few moments, I'll bring you an interview with Deval Patrick, who's the newest entry into the Democratic race. Uh, He's not going to be on the debate stage, although he's optimistic about that going forward. I'm going to ask him about impeachment and more. But Steve, I want to ask you, because a a lot of people are speculating now. I saw Ken Starr. Talking about this, uh, Barbara Comstock, a former Republican congresswoman, now an ABC contributor. Also uh, talking about the possibility of a Howard Baker moment. Uh, You covered Watergate. You know what that means, the power of the Senate Republican leader traveling down Pennsylvania Avenue to tell a president of the United States, game, set, match, it is over. Do you see that prospect coming into view? Is that a liberal fantasy uh, at this point? And who might be able to play that role in this highly partisan environment?
3: Well, you have, there are several elements to that question, and my basic answer is no. I do not see a Howard Baker moment looming any time soon for several reasons. First of all, uh, the Howard Baker moment was triggered by the release, uh, uh, because it was demanded by a federal court, uh, the release of White House tapes, which proved conclusively, without any shadow of a doubt, the President Nixon was the mastermind of a criminal conspiracy. Uh, and as we've been talking now for the last few minutes, no matter what we've learned today, there's still questions, there's still deniability, there's still a murkiness around the president's role. So um, we're still lacking the smoking gun, still lacking what we had in Watergate, which is incontrovertible evidence of the president's guilt. The second problem is... Who would play the Howard Baker role? Howard Baker was the Republican leader in the Senate. He was a conservative from Tennessee, but he also was a man of the Senate. He was a man who had loyalty not just to his party and not just to his president, but to the institution that he served. And today's Republican Party is very different. It's dominated by personal loyalty to Donald Trump. The few Republicans who disagreed with Donald Trump have left the Senate. Senator Corker of Tennessee, Senator Flake of Arizona, in part because if they stayed in the Senate, they would have been brutalized in a Republican primary. So we're lacking the two key ingredients. We're lacking the definitive evidence so far. And we're lacking the kind of Republican with a a loyalty to the institution, to history, and not just to President Trump, who would have the courage to st- step forward and say, this evidence is, is is overwhelming and you have to go. So both of the key elements of a Howard Baker moment so far, Rick, are lacking. All right, Steve Roberts, our thanks to you and thank you
0: for making your powerhouse politics debut. We'll have you on uh, many times in the future. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Aaron, I, I want to get a, a final thought from you because it really was a, a stunning day. A lot of people questioned how Gordon Sondland would come down on this, whether he would be uh, loyal to the president, uh, whether he would have explosive new information. Uh, I was not prepared covering this for the volume of uh, p- bombshells, frankly, that uh, were delivered by Sondland. I don't know that it moves any needles, but as you watched today, what was going through your mind about uh, how, how this changes the calculus around impeachment?
1: Well, it certainly was not a flip on President Trump, but it certainly came close. And, and if Sondland is going to be taken down, he made clear he's going to take some other people with him. And this uh, has to be difficult for Rudy Giuliani, for Secretary of State Pompeo, for Vice President Pence, whose office was uh, very busy sending out statements uh, about what did and did not happen, as as Sondland uh, recalled it. And, and and so I think you're right, that there were a number of, of potential bombshell moments, and still some stuff to to fill in. And that's why these hearings will continue. Uh, When exactly was the aid released and and why? Uh, We know that there are other people who are going to testify about the Pentagon being caught off guard by the aid being withheld in the first place. They thought that the the corruption benchmarks had been met by Ukraine. And so there are still little pieces of the puzzle. Uh, But but Sondland, uh, using the term quid pro quo for Democrats anyway, makes the case, uh, and and uh, for Republicans, falls uh, just a little bit short.
0: Yeah, he sure connected a whole lot of dots for people watching this. Aaron Katursky, our thanks to you for joining uh, the podcast on this very b- busy Wednesday. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, my conversation with Deval Patrick, the former governor of Massachusetts, and the latest entry into the Democratic presidential primary. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are pleased to be joined here on the podcast by the former two-term governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick. Governor, uh, how's South Carolina treating you?
4: It is uh, It is sunny, it is warm, uh, from a weather and a welcome point of view, and it's a wide-open race, Rick. Good morning.
0: Oh, great, great. Well, I'm, I'm in Atlanta, where there's a little debate going on uh, this evening. Uh, 10 Don't know anything York... about it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess not. Uh, <laughs> do you wish you were here? Uh, I'm just, I'm curious if you feel like You need to be here to get the message through and what you think you would bring to the conversation that that we won't see on stage, given your absence tonight. Well,
4: first of all, thank you for having me on the on the podcast today. And uh, thanks to all of your uh, all of your listeners for for tuning in. Um, Yeah, well, actually, I'm coming through Atlanta on the on the way to to uh, uh, visit with some of our new friends and supporters and uh, and have a chance to say hello to some of your colleagues. Uh, among the reporters, and I, look, I understand that uh, that I have to earn my way onto that stage, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm out introducing myself and uh, and our agenda, and making it clear that this campaign, uh, just like uh, this administration, if the people give us that honor, will be about everyone, everywhere, um, and not just folks who uh, you know get the get are made to feel important because they're in those early states um, or because they are. You know, donors or or uh, otherwise connected, but the folks who feel left out and left back, and that's the way I've tried to uh, uh, to serve as a uh, uh, as a governor and as frankly the, the sort of person I've tried to be. So yes, I'm, I'll, I'll get there one day. Um, I hope soon, but um, I understand I have to earn it, and that's what we're trying to do.
0: And part of that earning, as you know, is that the Democrats have this this two tier process where you need to register yes. in a series of polls in addition to grassroots fundraising. Uh, are you yes. focused on that? I'm curious what you're seeing in terms of your donations, how much money you've raised so far, how many donors you have so far. You're only in, in this race for a couple of days, but you've got a lot of, lot of ground to make up.
4: Yeah, it's actually not even a, not even a week. But, I, you know, I'll tell you just as an example of, uh, of the feedback we're getting. Within the first few hours of the website going live uh, last, uh, last Thursday, uh, DevalPatrick2020.com, we had volunteers sign up from every single one of the 50 states. That to me is, a, I realize, not a marker that the, uh, that the, uh, that the party has used for, um, uh, for qualifying for the debates, but it's enormously important to me that people are engaging. They're giving us a serious look that continues to climb. I can't tell you what the numbers are, uh, yet. My folks, many of whom have worked with me, uh, before, know that that's not the sort of thing that I personally want to track. I want to make sure we're raising the funds in order to be competitive and to be competitive for me means getting out and <clears throat> inviting people who have checked out to check back in and to take a close look and understand that this campaign is about them and not about me and our future and not about yesterday
0: or today. Is there is there a particular angle or argument that you feel like you'd be making on the stage that no one else is? It's a crowded field. A lot of these people are your friends um uh they are they're people you've known for a long time they've been in the race for for quite a while what what in your view would you bring to this to this race to debates like tonight
4: well you, you you're right a lot of uh, a lot of these candidates are my friends and uh, and i've talked to them from time to time uh, in the course of their campaign about the race and how it's unfolding and about the time um, and i think many of them have responded to my concerns from the outset that does not be just about removing the incumbent, but actually making fundamental and lasting change in a number of systems that have constrained, uh, constricted, and in some places even extinguished the American dream. Uh, and that can't just be about our sort of traditional uh, uh, constituencies as they're sometimes started. Um, it has to be about everybody everywhere. Um, so, for example, we are, we're talking about trying to get health care to everyone, and they are different Strategies for doing that. I'm the only one, I think, among the uh, among the field who's actually worked on that and built bridges in order to do that. So it wasn't just a partisan victory uh, from a political point of view, but it was a practical benefit brought to uh, uh, brought to regular citizens. Similarly, in how we grow our economy out so that it reaches the middle and the marginalized, and not just up to the well-connected. That that growth strategy, that opportunity agenda. Uh, is something I've worked on successfully in Massachusetts, not on my own and not just with our administration, but in building bridges with the business community, with advocates, with labor, and bringing everyone in uh, to delivering on that uh, on that strategy. so uh, I think some of what we're talking about are similar kinds of objectives, um, but uh, i don't think there's anyone else in the race who has the range of professional and life experience that I have and that I've brought to bear in solving problems in government, in business, nationally and internationally. Uh, I've still got a lot to learn um, from these candidates and from others. Um, But some humility, I think, in our solving, in our problem solving is uh, part of what I think it takes to actually get stuff done.
0: I'm struck by one thing you've been saying about how you can't campaign on nostalgia with an idea that you can just go back to the thing the way things were. Uh, you, of course, are very close with President Obama. You talked to him before you got in the race. You knew him from uh, back in uh, law school, I believe, long before he was uh, uh, on the national stage. But looking looking back at his presidency and looking forward, what do you say would be different about a Deval Patrick administration than an Obama administration? What would you be doing differently uh, than, than President Obama did?
4: Well, so first of all, let me be clear. I'm I'm crazy about President Obama. I think he was I think he was a wonderful president, and I think his uh, uh, his administration, uh, the tone it set, the actions they took, the the uh, the dignity of that uh, of that administration is a uh, is a uh, it's an extraordinary um, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, you know pride making uh, <laughs> contrast to what we have today. But I think the times are different too. Um, it's it's just remarkable to me that we have a president who seems to wake up every single day uh, thinking about and focused on ways to divide us. And um, it was tough, um, the sort of uh, uh, red wall that uh, that President Obama faced from time to time, especially when you consider that we were in the midst of a national emergency. Well, we have a different kind of national emergency today. We have an emergency where um, uh, where our uh, cultural um, uh, and economic anxiety is at an unusual high, and it's the leadership of our president that has made it worse. I think um, uh, there's a leadership that we need today which is clear about um, the importance of a unified uh, nation um, that does not compromise on addressing these big structural fixes that we need uh, around the tax code and health care and immigration uh, and so on, but it is also about bringing everyone into that problem solving and using that as an opportunity to bring the nation together so we are shaping our own future. It's a different time. It's not just about the, uh, a different um, uh, style or critique or anything like that of the Obama administration. It's just a different time with uh, unique challenges that I, I want to help
0: uh, help us all Meet. Does that mean? Does that mean different policies on on immigration, on uh, on taxes, and the economy? Are there are there areas where you say, well, this this is a this is a new direction that we need because it's a different time?
4: Well, I, I we're going to be rolling out a, a policy, a series of policy agendas over the next uh, several weeks. Starting, uh, I, I think we'll probably start with an opportunity agenda, which is an economic uh, growth and equity uh, agenda. Uh, we'll follow that uh, with a reform agenda that uh, offers. Our starting points for uh, uh, reforms to the tax code, immigration and health care and so forth, the criminal justice uh, system, particularly uh, mandatory minimum sentencing. And then a democracy agenda, because I do think we have to deal with all of the ways that over time we have contorted and twisted our our democracy so that it is harder uh, to participate and that we don't get outcomes that people want. Uh, So, for example, we know that there is a national consensus in favor of comprehensive immigration reform. Lots and lots of polls show that, just as there is a national consensus in favor of keeping government out of uh, a woman's uh, uh, right to choose whether to keep an unwanted pregnancy. We know that, Um, but there are reasons uh, through gerrymandering and the proliferation of dark money uh, through voter suppression and purging and so forth. That um, the public is unable to get the outcomes uh, in Washington that uh, that a are, that are functioning and healthy democracy would warrant. So we need to deal with that. We need to call that out, and we're going to put put forward a, uh, a comprehensive agenda around that.
0: We're, we're anticipating a lot of focus tonight on on the man who appears to be the new Iowa front runner, based on a couple of polls. Maybe the New Hampshire front runner as well, Pete Buttigieg. I'm curious your take about whether he has the right experience to be president. And also, if you read anything into the fact that he's lagging, as he is, according to public polling, among African-American voters, some of the voters that you're hoping to connect with and that you've been talking to in South Carolina in recent days.
4: Well, I I think the world of uh, of Mayor Pete, we've gotten to know each other over the course of the last uh, uh, last couple of years. I think he is wise beyond his years and uh, and one of the most thoughtful and well-spoken uh, of the candidates and i wish him well as i do others um i think that um you know in a way no one is really prepared for the presidency um it's a it's a unique set of assignments um but i will say that having had the experience uh, of solving problems uh with uh under um uh you know sort of normal circumstances and extraordinary ones from you know a uh, global economic crisis to a uh uh, to a uh, terrorist bombing at the marathon um, and having uh, the language and experience of dealing with the private sector, which is a big part of how we unify and drive uh, toward uh, national uh, uh, common objectives, is an advantage that I um, that I bring. Um, and uh, so, you know, this is not for me about trying to tear anyone else uh, or any other candidate down in order to build Myself and our cause up. It's just about trying to convey to people they have a choice. Uh, it's a meaningful uh, choice and uh, and difference. And there is a record, um, both on the private and the public uh, side, uh, that uh, that supports that choice. Not that we got everything right. Don't, don't get me wrong; Rick. nobody does. <laughs> um, but that uh, some of the some of the anxieties, some of the divisions that I'm seeing around the country, and that they. Campaigns and uh, and the cycle have uh, sort of brought to the core are things that I've been I've been facing and uh, addressing for much of my uh, much of my personal and professional life.
0: And, Governor, before we let you go, I know you've got to get back to uh, the campaign trail there in South Carolina. I, I really want your take on the, the news out of Washington this week, um, the impeachment. Wow, hearings that are, that's that are my take. <laughs> well, <laughs> it is. is well, but, no, you, you know, you know a lot about um, the issues that are being raised there as a former Justice Department official, as an attorney, even as just as a Democrat. I'm curious your take. What, what do Democrats need to do in these hearings to get the public on board for impeachment and removal? You know, we had a poll out this week. Seventy percent of people in the ABC Ipsos poll said that the president, they believe the president did something wrong, but only fifty-one percent thought it met the bar for impeachment and removal. So, uh, as an attorney, how do you how do you make that case? How do Democrats make that case, and do you feel like they're on track?
4: Well, you know, you can imagine that I'm not watching a uh, uh, minute-by-minute coverage uh, uh, right now because of uh, because of the campaign, but I do sure. read and watch the summaries, and uh, there's a gravity. Uh, about this moment, which I think Democrats are uh, respecting, and I think uh, the short answer to your question about how Democrats make the case is soberly. This is um, this is no small thing, um, but you know we have seen a pattern of lawlessness from this president and from this administration that runs deep. It's so deep and so saturating that I think uh, um, you know there is some risk. That we're all numb to it, and we shouldn't be. Our expectations of the president uh, should reflect our highest expectations of ourselves. Um, it is the uh, it's what we project on the world stage. It's what we uh, it's what we project to our uh, to our children. And I think Democrats are uh, are trying their very best to uh, to sort of filter out all of the noise and the games and the uh, and the uh, fantasy. Uh, some of their uh, defense and draw out the facts so that all can see them and judge them um, and make decisions accordingly
0: all right governor deval patrick uh, former governor of massachusetts i'd say i'd say i'd see you at doyle soon but that sadly has closed this is got to be <laughs> shattering news to the boston political class i don't know How about if, I know. that i know it's
4: crazy it's crazy and who does the whole neighborhood in? is exploding
0: Yeah, it it sure is. All right, Governor, we really appreciate you checking in from the trail. We'll check back with you again soon. Good luck out there. uh, And uh, hope to see you for having me. All right. Be well.
4: Take care. Bye bye.
0: Well, there you have it from the latest Democrat in the field. We'll be watching the debate tonight, responding to all of it as uh, the time in the cycle when usually you have fewer candidates. We have more Uh, still have the possibility of Michael Bloomberg getting in the race as well. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Uh, Special thanks to our entire team, Trevor Hastings, Angie Yak, Avery Miller, Eric Malo, stepping in behind the board today as well. We'll be back next time with Powerhouse Politics.